Okay, so good afternoon and welcome to the Lighthouse Analyst Relations uh, Conference Call. Uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, 10 lessons that analyst relations people need to have learned from uh, from 2011. My name is Duncan Chappell. I am the Managing Director of, uh, of Lighthouse Analyst Relations and, and I'll be presenting on this call. We're going to be together for about 45 minutes at the most, I would have thought. And I'm going to be um, talking through uh, the, 10, uh, the 10 items which, in my opinion, analyst relations people most need to have learned uh, from, uh, from this year. If you are sitting in front of a web browser, you can go to analystequity.com and there's a set of slides. You don't really need those slides. Nothing I'm going to be saying is hugely dependent on them. Uh, but uh, some people like that. Uh, some people uh, like to have slides, and so feel free to go to analystequity.com. You'll see the most recent item is a link to the presentation, and you can download uh, the slides. Uh, the slides there. What I want to do is just set the set the scenes a little bit to explain why these are the lessons that that people should be learning, and 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 why it should be me uh, who who is there. Uh, many of the people on the call have spoken with me or met me in the past, and not everybody will will know who I am. So what we've decided to do in this conference call is try to outline the 10 questions, the 10 lessons, the 10 answers that analyst relations people were most interested in, in hearing from us over the last year. And the key piece of data that we've been using for this has been uh, statistics from analystequity.com. That's the, the blog that I and other people here at Lighthouse write for. We've been looking at the articles that are most read in 2011. And in our opinion, the information that people are searching for is the best way of finding out the things that analyst relations people think they need to be learning at the moment. And unsurprisingly, the most read articles in, in our website in 2011 were articles that were written in 2011. Okay, I hope, I hope no one's really surprised about that. But actually, some of them, some much earlier articles about measurement are still getting very heavily read. And as I'll discuss later on, I think that shows the way that people in the analyst relations community are still struggling to get the right answers about measurement. And, and why should it be me? Well, as people may know, I'm Managing Director of Lighthouse Analyst Relations. I joined Lighthouse in 2002, goodness me, from, uh, from, uh, from Omnicom, which was a huge brand of, of public relations companies where I led an international analyst relations practice. And then before then, I was an, an analyst at Ovum uh, back in the dot-com boom of kind of 1999 and, and 2000. So I'm somebody who has had the opportunity to work with almost all of the, of the largest firms and a number of startups that are struggling to win the attention of analysts. And I've had the opportunity to co-author a book, Industry Analyst Relations, which you can get uh, on, on Amazon and uh, your local, local bookshop, if you're lucky. And uh, also I've been blogging and consulting, uh, uh, firstly through the Institute, of Analyst, uh, the Institute of Industry Analyst Relations, which I helped uh, found uh, five or six years ago, and, and on the Analyst Equity blog. So let's move on. Uh, just, just a few pieces of, of housekeeping before we start. Please mute your telephone. You should automatically be, be muted, but, uh, but if you are worried, feel free to mute your telephone call. Uh, 
If you have any questions, then feel free to email them to me. My email address is duncanchapel at lighthousear.com. That's that, that address is in the invitation that you got for this uh, for this call, so you will have that there. And before wrapping up the call, I will check uh, against my email box just to see if, if anything has come in. As I mentioned at the start of the call, there are some slides which I'm speaking to. You don't really need them, so please don't worry if you don't have those slides. Uh, but if you'd like them, then you can go uh, to analystequity.com. If you scroll down a little bit, you'll see the most recent item is called Presentation, uh, Top 10 Tips, or and, and you can go in there and get a hyperlink through to a PDF document which shows you the contents of what, what I'm doing. Just to give you a little context, there'll be some follow-up. We're going to email out these slides to people who didn't get them, We'll uh, answer any questions that we weren't able to answer during the call. And if the video quality is okay, uh, you, you, I think you can tell that I'm in a meeting room which is very high and echoey. If the audio quality is okay, then we'll also post the video. And as we mentioned in the invitation that went out to people who previously participated in, in our teleconferences, we're going to be starting a monthly series of, of telephone uh, conferences uh, in January 2012. It'll be a regular cycle on the fourth Wednesday of every month at this time, uh, so uh, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. UK Time, um, and we will be doing that with other organizations. So in order to have more of a conversation about analyst relations, influencer relations, corporate communications, we're going to be bringing in other organizations for conversations about the tasks facing us as communications professionals. Okay, so what are the what are the things that people need to uh, learn? What are the most pressing questions? You know, we've seen um, uh, a huge increase, actually, something like a thirty percent increase in traffic uh, coming to our blog, and, and and I think that indicates the way that that in the current recession, analyst relations ma managers are under are under more pressure. Things may be improving a little bit in two thousand and twelve. We're not sure, but definitely what we're seeing is that. People think the recession is changing analyst influence. I think people are seeing that there are changes going on in a number of the big analyst firms, and obviously I'm going to be speaking about changes at Yankee Group in particular, which are really reflecting through the analyst market as a whole. People are very curious and anxious about mergers and acquisitions and affiliate schemes and reorganizations which are making the analyst industry much more complex. People are worrying about sales. People are really worrying about the impact that analyst firms are having on sales and how better to understand that. And um, and about the, the best way for analyst relations managers to, um, to relate to influencer relations, to relate to sales, as I've, as, as I've mentioned, as a way to integrate into marketing, so a whole series of very uh, complex choices there. And we're seeing um, additional uh, challenges for people, uh, the kind of uh, methods that people might use to measure and evaluate analyst relations, how to do training, coaching, developing analyst relations, things all, well, goodness me, I, I really don't know how I'm, I'm going to be able to easily cover all of this in, in an hour. Um, and then the final thing which I'm going to be talking about is uh, something from us, something from from uh, from our perspective. What's the what's the one single thing that AR managers can do uh, to most easily uh, do things differently and better 
in in 2011. So that's the that's the landscape for the call. And just as a reminder for anyone who's who's joined the call late, um, if you go to analystequity.com, you can see a, a recent post from uh, from about half an hour ago where we've uploaded a set of slides that we're using for today's call. So you don't need those slides. Please don't worry if you don't have them. Uh, but they're there, and, and if you have them in front of you, we're, we're just moving on to slide five. So the first thing I want to start with, with uh, is, is the idea of how the recession has changed analyst influence. This is the top thing, the, the thing that people are most concerned about. And generally, uh, the, the, the slides that I'm going to be talking about are in order of priority. So if you if you hit up against a time boundary and you need to walk off, don't, don't worry, you've heard the most important things already. Well, I think there are three things that I need to say about how the recession has changed analyst influence. The first thing is the crisis is good for analysts. I mean, if we, if we look back to the, the start of, the, of, of, this, of this kind of new recessionary period back in 2008, since then we've seen that the, that the big analyst firms have all become stronger, and especially those that are really oriented towards the end-user community. If we look at Gartner and Forrester, they've been able to increase their average price per seat almost, well, in fact, more or less, they've doubled it. Uh, I mean, in the case of Gartner, from around $11,000 per seat on average to around $23,000 per seat. At Forrester, we've seen a similar increase, and at Gartner and Forrester, they've both been able to do that by shifting towards seat-based pricing, role-based services. At, at Ovum, uh, where, where, where I used to work as an analyst, I definitely know Ovum is also a firm that's, that's seen a huge boost in profitability over the, over the last uh, years. So there's a huge contradiction there, and it's related by the anxiety of buyers. You know, buyers are much more anxious. Buying is harder because uh, solutions, services, maintenance, the relationship with the buyer is much more important than it used to be. And so that means that people are using analysts uh, more, and end users are using analysts more. What we've also seen is the development of a second tier of firms, and and I think it's I think we need to say something about that in particular. Everybody knows that there's a a layer of analyst firms which are fundamentally dependent on vendors for for revenue. That there's a kind of advertorial layer of the analyst industry where um, vendors pay analysts and analysts there are some analysts that get most of their revenue from from vendors and I'm going to call them vendor centric uh, uh, analyst firms vendor funded analyst firms maybe that's a more direct way of talking about it and those organizations typically write about the things that concern the vendors and, and typically you can spot them because they're really approaching things from from the vendor viewpoint you know that they're talking about things that you know in in, in the idiom of the vendor so i think a great example of that is current analysis you know, current analysis produces great research but it's really answering the questions that vendors have that vendor marketing people have its research is not hugely useful for end users Maybe we can say the same thing about IDC. Its research is not hugely useful for vendors. Sorry, for uh, for end users. Uh, but what we are seeing now is is a layer of firms like Pierre Duan Consulting, Canalis, uh, other firms, who've who've got something like a. Um, something different from that traditional freemium model. You know where vendors pay 
analysts to write research that gets consumed by end users, which then makes end users more optimistic about consuming uh, the, the, the products of vendors and technology solution providers. We've got a different kind of model there, where if we look at PAC and Canalis and other firms, actually their research agenda is pretty independent, but they are still able to get revenue from vendors, and that's because they're monetizing their relationships with end users. So recently, I was I was in I had the great pleasure of of being invited by Canalis to attend their channel conference. So Canalis brings together in, in Barcelona around a thousand of the of the of the biggest channel partners, uh, reselling high technology solutions from big brand firms from all over Europe. Vendors paid Canalis to organize that conference to sponsor that conference. And in exchange, Canalis brings together a huge audience of, of the, the best-placed movers and shakers in the, in the European IT industry. It's an amazingly impressive um, range of people. In exchange for doing that, Canalis doesn't have to necessarily shift its research interests in any particular, intro, in any particular direction. Actually, Canalis is an organization which is usually focused on, on mobility, but still it's able to bring together an audience of people who are really concerned with selling uh, big-box uh, IT equipment, uh, selling some mid-range servers, selling enterprise software, a whole range of things. PAC has got a large um, IT research board where where CIOs in some of in hundreds of Europe in, in hundreds of Europe's largest companies are consuming research from PAC in exchange for contributing into PAC's uh, research process. And then that allows PAC to deliver higher quality research and, of course, makes PAC a much more interesting partner for vendors because it's got a much better understanding of what is going on in the market. So these firms have been able to really monetize in a clever way what's going on. The other thing that we're seeing is some firms increasingly going niche. You know, vendors are kind of going to market in vertical ways or in, or in national ways or in solution-specific ways. And so analyst firms, especially the vendor-centric ones, are moving in that way. Something I should say for people who are looking at the slides, at the bottom of this slide and, and subsequent slides, you can see some hyperlinks to articles that we've written on the Analyst Equity blog. So you know, feel free to follow that up in your own, in your own time. Uh, I've made quite a lot um, in, in, in discussions leading up to this call and in, in the publicity of this call for changes at Yankee Group. So Yankee Group is hardly a, a bellwether firm. I, I don't think it necessarily has got a particularly significant or outstanding position in the, in the industry. But I do think that it's an extremely representative example of the kinds of changes that analyst firms are discussing and are going through at the moment. I actually spend a lot of my time talking to the leaderships of, uh, of analyst firms. And what we're seeing at Yankee Group reflects a whole series of the changes that other analyst firms are talking about engaging with at the moment. So it's moved from being something like a full-service firm following the telecommunications market into a niche player hugely concerned with the, the, the anywhere everywhere economy with you know with mobility and technologies focused really on on, on, on on the mobile enterprise. It's moved away from an organization that was selling highly bespoke consulting into something which is much more data driven and you could say productized. 
it is moving in ways that other films are also moving from from having a more qualitative and forward-looking view to having a view which is really based on a more concrete analysis of data and one might say to a to a to a time orientation focused on now and what is happening in the market now and maybe what has happened rather than looking forward into the into the um, into the future it has a research method which is based on doing work faster and simpler with stronger methods and stronger process and to a degree milking the data assets you know acquiring more data millions of data points and using that for its research rather than relying on analysts to be philosopher kings and then that allows revenue growth based on easier sales if you can productize things if you can sell data rather than consulting then your uh, sales team can move faster and by placing more emphasis on recurrent and product sales then again you can not just use your own sales teams but you can use uh, sales partners and, and channel the marketing strategy that reflects changes in the market and the other major change of course that we need to talk about are mergers and acquisitions and reorganizations and affiliate schemes the market is becoming much more complex and to pick up on a few of those we're seeing a, a big growth on merger and acquisition obviously the, the US dollar is is declining this is a, um, uh, a more or less explicit goal of some of the various US administrations is to suppress the value of the US dollar in order to try to um, substitute for um, well in, in order to in order to uh, make American products easier to buy and um, but that means that it hugely encourages US firms that export because if the US dollar declines against the euro any revenue that you bring back in in, in euro or, or other currencies is just worth that much more when you bring it home there's another advantage to merger and acquisitions which is that as with all knowledge businesses there are huge economies of scale you can sell the content in more countries there's a massive learning curve in selling and marketing you can expand your coverage and to a degree you can kind of kill competitors you know when Gartner can buy Burton Group it can definitely learn something from that and acquire some great analysts and some great salespeople and some wonderful clients but fundamentally it's able to strip out a massive amount of cost from Burton and much of that revenue just goes through to the bottom line and there's another opportunity in affiliate networks so we see this with Yankee increasingly using affiliate firms and affiliate networks um, looking at Ovum, a, a company which I know really well, also they are they are um, you know uh, also an organisation which uses affiliates substantially, and that has the advantage of of reducing the need for overhead and expanding the coverage that people have, and I think we can see more of that. And I think one of the complications that this produces for analyst relations managers is how to understand which firms are really driving sales. It's always been hard to understand um, how far you need to allocate different levels of effort to analysts that have got different levels of impact on clients and on your sales channel. Actually, it's been a lot easier to understand which firms are directly influencing your clients and much harder to understand which firms are influencing your channel. 
But I think now most firms have been doing analyst relations, most large firms have been doing analyst relations for a long time, and most analyst relations professionals are much more experienced than they were two years ago or four years ago. One of the advantages about the recession is it's really hard to move out of analyst relations. And so those of you who are doing analyst relations have been doing it for much longer, and on average AR people are much more uh, skilled. And that means that we see a lot of people operating with an understanding of, uh, of, the, of the Pareto principle, you know, that this 80-20 ratio that people talk about. But it's got a really peculiar uh, impact. If you imagine 80% of the influence is held by 20% of the analysts, and that only 20% of the influence is held by the other 80% of the, of the, of the, uh, of the analysts. Okay, firstly, that leads to something smart, you know, that, that people start to put 80% of their effort into 20% of the analysts. However, what happens when everybody puts 80% of their influence into 20% of the analysts? Well, suddenly you start to create the situation where some analysts get a huge amount of effort and other analysts get very little effort. And activities like the Institute of Industry analyst relations is uh, polls that indicate which are the most influential and best analysts. Activities like analyst impact modeling, the statistical process which allows you to see which analysts have the most impact on sales. Organizations like Apollo Research, which are targeting the analyst with the highest profile in the press. And uh, rankings like the Power 100 from, from AR Insights, which tries to indicate the analysts who are most targeted by other vendors. This all has the impact that more and more effort is going onto a smaller and smaller level of analysts. So imagine if 20% of the analyst relations effort goes into 80% of the, of, the, uh, of the analysts. That means that 80% of the analysts just aren't getting a lot of, uh, of attention. And if you take that 80 to 20 ratio, four units of effort, I'm sorry, this is a little bit mathematical, but please, please follow me. 4% of effort is, uh, sorry, four units of effort are going into the top analysts, one quarter of a unit of effort is going into the other 80%. So that means there's 16 times more effort going into the most influential analysts. This is actually producing a missed, a missed opportunity. We're looking at the situation now where that long tail of analysts, which is still influential, is really neglected, and the most influential analysts are kind of getting besieged. And there's a real opportunity for firms now to be able to drive sales by connecting more effectively with analysts who are influencing clients in the channel. If they look at that, at that kind of bulge in the middle, you know, actually there is a very, very long tail and people are, are, are neglecting that. I want to move on a little bit to talk about the best way of relating to influencer relations. There's a lot of confusion about, about influencer relations. It's used in very different ways. Some people talk about influencers as people in the white space. So imagine you've got your little Venn diagrams and you've got the different marketing communications audience and you've got investors and press and industry analysts and academics and people like that. And then you've got that little white space in between, people who are neglected, um, bloggers, um, high-profile intellectuals, people who are forgotten. Lots of people think of influencers that way, as people in the white space. And then other people have got a very specific definition of influencers that they are, for example, third-party sales advisors, or they are procurement advisory firms, or, you know, they're much some 
some much more specific idea of what influences are. It's important to recognize those differences, but however you define influencer relations, the key task is integration. The key task is to take what we take to take what we call the ideal approach. So that means to identify the people who you're targeting, to drive your program by using specific goals, to engage with them, to align what you're saying to the other parts of the business, and to leverage it, you know, to see whether the, the successful conclusions, the successful outputs from your outreach can be fed back into other communities and other purposes. But there's a danger in the influencer relations approach as well, which is the really mistaken idea that people who are not analysts are displacing analysts. Now, what we're seeing in the market is that there are more influencers, there are more influencers on customers. But all of these influencers are more influential. You know, analysts are more influential, procurement advisors are more influential, channel partners are more influential, because there's more anxiety in the procurement process. And that means that life is much harder for salespeople, and analyst relations has a key task in aligning more to sales. And that means that analyst relations needs to identify strategies to integrate into marketing as a whole. And that's especially difficult because the product approach, the traditional product approach where product managers are spokespeople going out to analysts and analysts want to hear about products, that is dead or dying at most firms. Now analysts are really much more focused on, on, the, on the client's business problems. And that means that vendors have to be coming along, solution providers have to be coming along and starting with the client as the hero, talking about ways in which they're solving customers' pain and really taking the solution selling approach of focusing much more on the client's business model, the client's business goals, how far the technology is meeting those goals, rather than focusing on, on, on core technology. And that connects up with changes that we're seeing more broadly in marketing communications, that marketing communications managers are starting much more with the brand story. They're trying to develop really emotional stories where the client is the hero to really you know, ev evoke the mind, to really produce a much more powerful connection in the listener to what they're hearing. And that means getting away from a way of communication which really reflects your, your product roadmap and you know, the timeline of, of, of releases of new solutions and really focusing much more onto stories which are probably more verticalized, which are probably more national or regional, which are really um, aligning to the conversation that's going on to, in the whole market. And that's important because also there's a huge impact of social media and the way in which companies' communications is more diffuse now. You know, once we used to be able to control, gatekeepers used to be able to keep gates closed, but now we have a very diffuse conversation. And ensuring that you've got strong messaging which is related at the top level to the brand story and to the client story, the story about how the brand is making the client a hero, that is much more important than it used to be. And that helps us relate things much more tightly to, uh, to sales. One of our best read uh, posts this year was a very recent one uh, called Always Be Closing. People may, may, may recognize this, uh, this, this slogan, ABC, Always Be Closing. 
And actually, we can relate this now much more strongly to tactics and briefings. In one way, this is something that we've changed our opinions about as the market has shifted. Four or five years ago, we saw a lot of spokespeople who had staggered out from media relations training, and all they'd remembered was this mantra to control, bridge, and sell. So you try to control the conversation by remembering your messages, you bridge the conversation back to your messages, and then you sell the benefit of your messages. This was a great way to antagonize analysts, because analysts wanted to control the conversation. But what we think is important is that people need to be using briefings much more to bridge back to the client story, to try to close the analyst on the success that they have brought the end user, and to encourage analysts to focus on end user issues, and to really take the focus away from the supply side, from the technology side, and to focus much more on the benefits for end users. Obviously, that is deeply advantageous for the analyst. Any analyst that is focusing more on how to solve end-users' clients is going to get more traction with end-users and more traction with the vendor. But it also is going to help uh, the vendor to maybe take the focus away from the problematic realities of being a technology vendor today. But the other way to drive sales is to focus much more on the outputs of analyst relations and marketing. We need to be looking much more closely at, at endorsements, at events, at case studies, at analyst research, at using uh, analysts in, in our marketing, in our press, in our events, to see how far we can push analysts, push analyst research, push the outputs of our analyst relations program into the marketing process so that we can make the most of it. Then that changes in many ways the methods that we need for measuring and evaluating analyst relations. It really poses some serious questions for us about what methods are most effective. And to, to kind of echo that old phrase, if you don't know where you're going, any direction will go, sorry, any direction will do, but how will you know when you've got there? So lots of people are simply engaged in the day-to-day -day process of doing analyst relations, but they don't have clear goals, and therefore they're not really able to manage or to measure or to evaluate their activity. My, my father always used to say one of the great things about Hollandaise sauce is that you could use it to, to cover you know, any, any miserable piece of meat that you came across. And one of the things that metrics can do, similarly, is to conceal rather badly oriented activity. One of the things that we're seeing still is that people are measuring their own activity, their outputs, sorry, their, their inputs into the process, how many briefings they're organizing, how many emails they're sending out, how many telephone calls they're making, how many, tele how many telephone calls they're receiving. People are really um, measuring their outward bound activity and their reactive activity rather than the end results. That is certainly made much easier by the effective use of, uh, of project management tools, of CRM tools, and, and I'm a big fan of doing that. But there's a real uh, folly in organizations that think that they will be able to accomplish one thing when they're measuring and rewarding another. You know, if you, um, lots of people, for example, understand that they will get sales recommendations by building compelling relationships with industry analysts. 
but actually what they are measuring and rewarding is the number of one-off meetings that they're having. Lots of people are, are rewarding volume when they're hoping for relationships. And that is very ineffective, and it's especially hard to change when people are continuing to measure in a more or less subjective way the activities that they're engaging, so trying to score calls as being warmer or less warm, rather than looking objectively at the way that you can measure what your program is accomplishing. So we're a big fans of using uh, analyst attitude surveys, multi-client studies where you're going out and speaking to analysts about how favorable they are towards you and to your competition, and not kind of putting your finger on the scale by by making it clear to the uh, analyst who, who's sponsoring the research so that they they are, uh, you know, obviously an analyst is going to be more favorable about you if they know that you're a sponsor of the research. And it, we're also uh, seeing more interest in using really quantitative benchmarks, looking at uh, how often you're being recommended, how often you're being mentioned in research, what your share of voice is. We really think that these beat self-assessment every time. And that also feeds back to issues of training and coaching and developing analyst relations teams. And although we're a firm that's been engaged for a long time in, in training analyst relations managers, I think we and, and other people in the industry need to uh, are increasingly honest about the limits of training. I think it's useful to take a kind of systems approach, you know, that, that what you do is really it's your inputs multiplied by your process. That's the output of what you're doing. So what you're doing is only good as how much effort you put in and the process that you follow. And lots of people have tried to improve analyst relations by increasing the inputs, or by working longer hours, or by using interns, or by getting their agency to help. But actually, it's the, it's the process that we need to get better. So very often we're not able to shift the amount of hours that we put in. The amount of knowledge that we have is actually quite high now. I think most analyst relations people are really able and, and well-skilled. But still, in lots of firms, we're using the, the banker theory of training, you know, the idea that there's a bank of knowledge and that teachers are like bankers, you know, that they go around and they look for knowledge to be deposited in their bank and they build up more and more facts. And then the process of training is uh, kind of announcing facts. That's not working because the problem isn't knowledge anymore. Most analyst relations people have got a pretty good idea of the... Of the of the of the problems, you know, you can you can buy, uh, you know, you can buy a Ephraim Malik's book, um, win them over, and learn pretty much everything there is to know about about analyst relations, uh, or you can buy um, uh, my little book, Industry Analyst Relations, which I co-authored with Ralph Leinerman, and get a primer. No matter where you are, you know, you can get the knowledge. The problems that analyst relations teams have now are not to do with knowledge. And the relations teams need organizational development. You know, they need real help to assess what is going on in their in their in their team to help them to accomplish their priorities. I mean, I mean not just to set them, but actually to fight for the time so they can accomplish them. They need to develop influencing strategies internally. Actually, influencing analysts is much easier than influencing your colleagues. And the problems that people have are about influencing their colleagues. And real relationship building, you know, so shifting the way that they are working so that they're not just pushing out in a one-way broadcasting information about the firm, but that they're able to focus enough on building relationships with a small number of analysts. And, and spokespeople don't really need training. You know, I think many spokespeople now understand the analysts. 
what they need is mentoring. You know, we need a long process where where we've got people who are who are sitting down with our spokespeople, who are watching them, who are who are giving them advice, who've got the permission to correct and 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 challenge the spokesperson in a way that an analyst relations manager often can't do. And analyst relations managers actually need coaches. The problems that analyst relations managers have now are the classic problems that all managers have. It's about setting direction. It's about staying focused. It's about accountability. Having somebody who says, look, you said that you would do this last month, and, and a month later, tell me how you've done and what's going on there. So coaches are really able to help managers, all managers, not just analyst relations managers, to withstand diversions. And now we're seeing AR managers under more and more pressure. So uh, we need uh, more support, more coaching in the, in the analyst relations community. I want to um, start to wrap up now by, by coming to this one single thing. What is the one single thing that people need to do differently in 2012. And to be honest, there's there's probably one single thing that you need to focus on, but it's different from the one single thing that everybody else needs to focus on. What we're seeing is that there are bottlenecks in the analyst relations process. So think back to what we were talking about as our ideal method, identify, drive, engage, align, and leverage. The effectiveness of your analyst relations isn't the sum of these things, it's the multiplication of them. So a low score on any one of those things is driving down your effectiveness on all of them. You know, if, you, if you've got a great analyst relations program, but you haven't correctly identified the right analysts, the entire effectiveness of your program is undermined. If you uh, have got the right analysts, but you're not uh, leveraging the benefits, the outputs of your program, the whole impact of your program is scaled down. So what we are encouraging people to do is to find the bottleneck. You know, lots of people are focusing quite correctly on what they're good at. I'm, I'm a big fan of doing that. I praise people for focusing on what they're effective on. But actually what you need to do, the one thing you need to do differently is find the bottleneck, find the weak point, find the weak link, the weak link in your chain and improve that. Now, we are offering a free uh, Lighthouse audit. Uh, you can email me if you want to do that. It's a pretty simple questionnaire that we go through that asks you about the main activities that, that you and other analyst relations programs are engaged in. And in this way, we will give you a diagnosis of, 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 of where we think your, 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 uh, your weaknesses are. Okay, so those were the those were the main points that we wanted to raise uh, during during the call. I just want to pause for a moment to see if anyone has emailed any questions into me at uh, duncanchapel at uh, lighthousear.com. No, there are no questions emailed in. That's not a surprise. So if there are thoughts uh, that you have subsequent to this call, I do hope that you will telephone me uh, or you will email me or you will tweet me. Uh, my, my Twitter handle is uh, at duncanchapel.com. But otherwise, uh, thank you for joining the call. If you've come in late, then I should just mention that there are slides online uh, of uh, uh, of this call, which is a, a useful a useful summary of uh, of the main activities that we are uh, the, the 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 main problems that we've been discussing uh, today. Um, we'll we've taken a recording of this call. I'm not sure how good it will be, but if it's good, then we will then we will put it online. And please feel free to come back to us with our with our uh, with your questions. And we hope to see you joining us in January for the start of our series of conference calls. So 
Thank you very much for your time, and I'll look forward to speaking with you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.